we've taken that for the very first time into family skincare. And it's because I think the last 20 years, like you've seen all this investment and innovation and money going into women's skincare that's been hugely profitable for many companies. And family skincare, so products for your babies and your children and, you know, your kids have been sort of ignored the last 20 years. Formulas have not changed the last 20 years. Innovation has not really gone there. Welcome to this episode of Imagine Human, where we share the stories of diverse changemakers at the intersection of social impact, science, and technology. I'm your host, Morgan Moncada. Did you shower today or wash your face? Chances are you did. And if so, you likely expose yourself to a large number of chemicals that may be damaging your skin every day. In fact, according to the Environmental Working Group, on average, men use six personal care products a day, exposing them to 85 unique chemicals. And women use 12 personal care products a day, exposing them to 168 chemicals. Despite the ubiquitous use of these products, almost all are unregulated by the FDA. In this episode, we are joined by Kimberly Ho, an investment banker turned CEO and current founder of EverEden, a startup developing the safest standard for skincare. Kim will share her journey as a young entrepreneur, as well as a behind-the-scenes look at modern skincare. Hi, Kim. Welcome to Imagine Human, and we're so happy to have you here today. Thank you. Um, I was wondering if we could start off by just getting kind of an introduction to how you got started with Ever Eden. You were previously an investor at Oak Tree Capital operating in a very different space. Can you tell us a little bit about the moment when you decided to make the switch to entrepreneurship? Yeah, no. Um, so I was an investment banker at Goldman Sachs for two and a half years. And then I moved into private equity investing where I was investing in all these amazing skincare and beauty brands that you and all of our friends probably know and love. And, you know, sort of two years into investing in all these great brands, I just thought of, you know, I saw a lot of stuff that happened behind the scenes in the industry that just didn't make me super comfortable. At the same time, all of my friends and family, they were starting families of their own. And they would often ask me because I was in the industry, you know, oh, like Kim, what were what are brands? that you believe in or what are brands that are truly safe and truly clean and true truly doing things you know well and I just knew too much from behind the scenes where I couldn't really put my name behind any of these brands and like confidently recommend any of these so-called clean or natural brands and that's when I thought you know what like I'm this crazy perfectionist I I know that there is a better cleaner way to create skincare products that are not only efficacious and good for you but also safe for you uh, that I just decided to go out and, you know, leave finance and start Ever Eden to create really the safest standard in skincare. And that's been our mission from day one. And that still is our mission today. That must have been a pretty huge transition point from your previous work, something that was relatively secure and that you were familiar with, jumping into the 
precarious, uncertain world of entrepreneurship. So can you tell us a little bit about what was going on behind the scenes that motivated you so strongly? Was there a particular moment, something that maybe you saw in a factory where you're like, you know, this is, this is wrong. This is unethical. I, I have a different vision for where this needs to be. Yeah. And, you know, without naming specific names, but there are enough big names where there are so many families and so many people using these big brands. And like, there was so much trust writing into this, these brands that when stuff came up, like, you know, the, the odd lawsuit or quality control issue as an investor or as someone who was in the company, but not making the day-to-day decisions, if I were in their shoes, I would have overhauled things completely. I would have fired people. I would have, you know, done things differently. And maybe there are real decisions for why those decisions weren't done. But I've always been a perfectionist. And I just felt that like uh, the beauty industry and skincare industry had been done a certain way for decades and decades and things just needed a change. And And for me, I just thought that as an outsider, I could bring in a perspective that would be interesting or valuable. And so one of the first things I did was like when I started Overeat, and a lot of people thought it was overkill, but I hired regulators and quality control people who were, they had 20 or 30 years of experience at some of the largest consumer conglomerates. And many people at my early stage, so pre-launch would have thought that was overkill. Like, you know, you you hadn't put out a product yet and yet you're hiring this like these crazy regulatory and quality control people is that really necessary another thing i did that was different from what the status quo was starting out of the gate i worked with manufacturers who were you know the biggest manufacturers in the industry so they had 20 or 30 years of experience they had very 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 high minimum order quantity so moqs is the industry terms And for a lot of startup beauty brands or skincare brands, they work with smaller manufacturers who are more flexible. They have lower MOQs. So you start out with maybe 500,000 products per per SKU. So, but for some of the manufacturers I worked with, they had, you know, minimum 5,000, 10,000, sometimes 20,000 MOQs, which meant that you put a lot more money on the line to work with these guys. But for me, I knew that these guys with their decades of experience, with their tight regulatory and quality control experience, they were less likely to mess up. And for me, that was important because I just saw so many instances as an investor that made me uncomfortable. And if I was going to go out and change the standard of safety and efficacy in skincare for family skincare products, then I had to work with the best of the best. And so I did a lot of things differently from day one, which was unusual. But I think in the course of the last year, you know, being in the market, that served me well. And it seems to have kind of shaped your brand into one that's very much pushing forward trust between your company and its products and your consumers. And I guess that's related to diving into the baby skincare market, which is, it's an area where families and parents especially have a lot of concern and they take a lot of precaution. So can you talk a little bit about how you decided to enter that market first and where you saw the need for baby skincare in particular? Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, I'm at the age where myself, all my girlfriends, all of us are thinking about products to use and put on our families, our baby skin. And so for me, you know, I just couldn't really find 
something that I could recommend to my girlfriends and their children. And I've grown up in an age, you know, fortunately of choice, where we are inundated as a woman with all these amazing products, with amazing innovation. And yet when we become mothers, there is nothing, you know, that that really speaks to me as a woman. And also for my friends, like, you know, they grew up with all these amazing products and yet there's nothing that's aspirational, but also efficacious and innovative and safe. And so Forever Eden, what we've taken is all the innovation that you've seen in luxury women's skincare for the last 20 years, all these amazing ingredients that are natural and safe, but expensive. And we've taken that for the very first time into family skincare and it's because I think the last 20 years, like you've seen all this investment and innovation and money going into women's skincare that's been hugely profitable for many companies and family skincare. So products for your babies and your children and, you know, your kids have been sort of ignored the last 20 years. Formulas have not changed the last 20 years. Innovation has not really gone there. And so I think that's a shame because like our most precious assets are our children and our babies and babies have the most fragile skin. Like a baby's skin is 30% more delicate and fragile than the under eye of adults. And so it's medically classified as fragile. And yet, if you look at the dollars going into preserving, you know, women and adult men's skin versus babies, like in the last 20 years, it's not even, it's not even in the same playing field. And so what we're doing is really for the first time thinking about family skin care in a way that honors the, the level of care that real parents put into children. And, you know, we're not saying start spending $200 for your children. No, we're just taking innovation that we've already seen in adult skincare, taking that and putting those amazing ingredients that we know work for, for skin, adult and especially babies, and putting it at a price point that's available and accessible for many families. So our most expensive product for our baby skincare line is under $20, but we're also using top of the line ingredients. So with our direct consumer business model, we're able to sort of buy cut a lot of middlemen and offer the same level of innovation and luxury, but at a price point that is not unimaginable for many families. And so you're using the ingredients that high-end brands have been using for adults, but you're also modifying that to make it healthier and more natural. Mm -hmm, exactly. And can you talk a little bit about what natural means to you and how you viewed the industry's use of the word natural in their products? Yeah, that's a great question because I really view Ever Eden as a pioneer in clean skincare that's also scientific. And so what that means is that, of course, we prioritize natural and organic botanical ingredients that are good for you and good for skin. But we also recognize that there needs to be real science to all these products. Like just because something has kale and spinach in it doesn't mean it does anything for your skin. And that's why we have our amazing doctors. Our chief scientific officer, Dr. Joyce Tang, is also the head of Stanford's pediatric dermatology department. And, you know, two of her counterparts from Harvard together, the three of them make up our scientific board and they help formulate and decide what ingredients go in and stay out of all of our products. And first, that's a science bit, you know, all these three amazing women who are 
at the top of their game um, in dermatology, especially pediatric dermatology. They talk about what's safe for your skin and what's not safe for your skin. But also, you know, I think the conversation around natural, non-natural skincare has gotten so dichotomous because people think like, oh, if you like natural skincare, then, you know, all chemicals are bad for you and bad for skincare. And that's not true because, you know what, like poison ivy is a natural ingredient and poison ivy is extremely dangerous. And so I I think like the conversation around natural and non-natural skincare has been so oversimplified. There are great synthetic ingredients that you need in your skincare products so that your skincare products do not grow mold and there are natural ingredients that are sensitizing and terrible for you for example you know poison ivy like taking it to the extreme but there are also natural ingredients at ever eden that we ban for example lavender and certain fragrances that are very very common and that's really where our doctors come in and so it's natural clean but it's also scientific interesting so what is it about lavender or some of these natural ingredients? Is it that there's some sort of allergic response to them? You know, as consumers, we enjoy the fragrance, but we don't realize that maybe it's damaging our skin. Yeah, I think there are some ingredients like lavender and tea tree oil that are known as sensitizers and irritants and allergens. And so, you know, lavender is a known skin sensitizer. Um, and it's also been linked in certain studies to be an endocrine disruptor and a hormone disruptor. And so for us, you know, our approach is always to be safe. And if there are more studies showing that any ingredient, natural or otherwise, could be potentially harmful to you, we're going to avoid that. And that's just the approach we take. We're very, very strict in terms of ingredients that we put into our products. And so whether or not it's natural otherwise, I think our approach is just to be safe. Can you give us a sense of how strict you are relative to other companies? Like how many different ingredients are there out there? And how many of you guys decided to blacklist essentially? I mean, this is a known fact, but I think the U.S. bans something like under 20 ingredients for use in cosmetics and beauty products, whereas the European Union bans over 1,400 ingredients from use in cosmetics products. And so literally there are over a thousand ingredients that are unallowed for use in Europe that are allowed for use in the U.S., And just the regulation in the U.S. and elsewhere in the world hasn't caught up to certain parts of the world, for example, Europe. And so for us, we go above and beyond even what the standards are in the EU. Of course, we ban the ingredients that the EU disallows. But aside from that, we've also banned ingredients that our doctors have deemed potentially unsafe because of new medical research that's coming out today. And so the reason we have our doctors really helping us with our formulations is because there is a gap between information that's already publicly available on the internet and then information that is around in the medical field being researched. And so 
our three doctors, you know, this is what they do. And their life's work is around skin safety and skin health and ingredients that work for your skin and don't. And so when they say that XYZ ingredients, you know, should not be allowed in every Eden's products, that's a combination of information that's already been out there. For example, ingredients that are banned all over Europe and then ingredients that they're seeing increasing literature and including science around potentially being harmful for you and your family's skin. And so that is why I think Ever Eden has the strictest standards in the industry, because we're not only looking at what's already out there in the internet or the world, but we're also following what's new in the scientific industry and really taking our doctor's lead on what is safe for your skin. That's very interesting. It sounds like it's a really rigorous and cutting edge scientific approach to cosmetics and skincare and how we kind of think about everyday products that we oftentimes take for granted. So as someone who's used skincare yourself, what is the most surprising thing that you've learned about the products that you've used? For me, I think it's been a process. I mean, I really started this as a skincare junkie. I loved all kinds of skincare and had skincare problems going up and I just use all these kinds of brands. And as I grew older, I just realized that there was a lot of junk house putting on my skin. And you never know, I guess, the influence of the products you use all your life and how it's linked to your life health in general. But there have just been so many studies around, you know, certain products, for example, talcum powder and cancer, that as you grow older, as you're trying to start a family and trying to be responsible about what your family uses, that I've had to just educate myself on, on all these products and what they mean to me and my family. And so for me, I've just been like any one of my consumers slowly shutting off first the worst products like talcum powder, like hair dye. And then, you know, over time, you know, like products that have parabens and sulfates and synthetic fragrance and so on. And so it's been a process of discovery and education for myself also. And I'm not, I'm not perfect. I mean, I just don't think the industry is there yet where I can 100% use products that are 100% clean, but I think it's getting there. And I think that's what we're trying to do at Ever Eden. It's not about perfection, but it's about a process of, you know, living healthier and living cleaner over time. And hopefully over time in the process of growing with our customers, we will have products for all of our customers' lives and their needs. Can you talk a little bit about, so Ever Eden is a new brand and you're going toe to toe with some of the biggest household names in the world, essentially, but you're using a really smart direct to consumer approach and your company was just founded a few years ago. Can you talk a little bit about your journey as a young CEO, maybe in the last few years and some of the significant challenges of bringing this brand alive? Yeah. No, that's a great question. I mean, I feel like the challenges for me have been different at every single stage. I'm a young CEO now. I'm 30 years old. When I started this company, I was 27 years old. And so I remember my first meeting um, with a supplier. You know, they were this big manufacturer. They made stuff for like all the big companies you could think of. And I I walked into the room. It was like a couple of people. They were all like two or three decades older than me. They had been in the industry 
two or three decades older than me. Therefore, like for the whole time I was born or something. Um, <laughs> um, and like, I just remember feeling, feeling so insecure. Like I didn't know all these industry terms like MOQ meant minimum order quantity. And like, you know, there were a thousand terms just like that where I didn't know anything. And the first day, like I wore my hair like a hundred different ways in the morning before the meeting. I put on brown makeup all over like my wrinkle lines and everything just so I would appear older. Um, <laughs> I know it didn't work because I'm like an Asian girl and therefore I look like, I don't know, 20 forever. You look young forever, <laughs> basically. Yeah. And I was already young. I was 27. And so I must have looked like I was 15 or something. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but I was just so insecure starting out. And I think over time, I've just learned all these terms. I've learned how the industry works. And I don't think my experience has been that different from any other entrepreneur, except that it's really, really difficult. And you only stick it through because you love what you do. You believe in your vision. You believe in your product. You have something that you want to put out in the world that feels good and feels meaningful. And even today, like at Ever Eden, we still get emails from customers and from moms who tell us like they've tried everything in the market and nothing's worked except for Ever Eden. And for me, that gives me meaning and gives me purpose. And so I'll do my hair up a thousand more times if it means I'll put out something that, you know, means something for some mom somewhere in the world. Oh, that's really beautiful. Yeah, thank you for that. And how did you how did you get up to speed? You know, you're you're learning from all of these different, I guess, executives who are have decades of experience. How did you catch up to them? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess before Ever Eden, before skincare, before beauty, I worked in finance for five years where I was often the youngest voice in the room where I also had to get up to speed really quickly in an environment that was hyper aggressive, hyper type A. And so in finance, you know, at least when I was starting out, there was almost like a fake it till you make it mentality where, you know, try not to seem like you're drowning, just like do your job, keep your head down, but also learn everything in the meantime. And it was this like drinking from the fire hose sort of environment for five whole years. And so when <laughs> When I started at Ever Eden, it was like a different kind of drinking from the fire hose in that it wasn't like financial modeling or EBITDA or revenue or margins, but it was like, you know, what kind of ingredients make your skin glow or like, you know, skincare and beauty, totally different world, but same kinds of expectations if you were starting a company. And that's where I think my experience in finance like really came through and really helped me because as a young woman, in, in skincare, where I was dealing with manufacturers with decades of experience, much older than me, much more experienced than me, I think I just learned that I had to, in some ways, you know, fake it till you make it is almost the wrong term, but almost like believe in yourself until your skill set caught up with your level of outer confidence. And for me, that that helped. You know, I knew I was going to get there because from my experience in finance, I knew I was going to get there, too. And so in a lot of these meetings, especially after the first meeting, I knew that I may not know every single thing, but I was going to get there. I was going to learn all the terms. And over time, if you sit through enough meetings where people talk about MOQs and all these terms, you're going to learn what it means. And then you're going to do the job. 
And then you start using it. <laughs> yeah. And then you're like, okay, yeah, I'm just going to use MOQ in every conversation from now on. Exactly. Exactly. But also, like, I think as an entrepreneur, like, you have to do every single thing all on your own because you don't have the luxury of hiring a hundred people who are experts at what they do at the largest companies. They have a whole team for social media. They have a whole team for operations and a whole team for this and that. When you're starting as an entrepreneur, you're the whole team. And so you have to do social media. You have to do operations. You have to do logistics. You have to do product development. And it's a hundred percent job, but you have to do it. Otherwise, your company doesn't get off the ground. And so by the time we launched, this was a year and a half in, I had done all these different departments. And so when I hired all these people to be the head of operations, the head of product development, the head of marketing. I had done that job for almost two years. And so I knew what I was talking about by the time I hired these experts. And I think that's so important for entrepreneurs to also learn and do the job that they're going to be hiring for because people are not going to learn from you and respect you if you have no idea what you're talking about. And so by the time I hired these roles, I'd done the job for two years already behind the scenes. Got it. And how? Did, what did that teach you about yourself? Like, what did that teach you about your own skill sets and where you excel as a leader? I think it taught me that I was the sort of person who just enjoyed chaos and <laughs> entrepreneurship. I'd been in very, very structured environments where, frankly, I didn't enjoy it. I didn't enjoy the hierarchy. I enjoyed the bureaucracy. I didn't enjoy the structure. I like the analysis, and that's why I stayed in finance. But there was a side of me that yearned for more creativity, and I never understood it until I started Ever Eden and until I became became an entrepreneur and I realized that I was singularly meant to be an entrepreneur and it's a very particular type of personality. I can only speak for myself in that like I actually am extremely comfortable with risk taking and chaos and like in any given day I'm doing a hundred different things at once like legal and fundraising and marketing and operations and product development and hiring and I actually love doing a hundred different things in any given day and I know people that hate the unstructured nature of an early stage startup but for me that's the stuff that keeps me going keeps me excited and that's what I found out you know doing Ever Eden and starting Ever Eden. And how did you go about assembling some of your first team members and some of the key leadership that you need for this kind of science-led company? So early on, I knew that we wanted to create a new standard for skincare for families around the world. And so that's where I brought in the doctors that we have who will help us formulate our products and help us decide what ingredients go into our products. And these are, you know, women and doctors who are at the top of their game. Dr. Joyce, who is our chief scientific officer, is the head of Stanford's pediatric dermatology department. And I went to her in 2017 with just a few slide decks and, and the name of Aiden. We had just decided on that name. We flew to her, see her in Stanford, and just sold her the dream and told her that we wanted to create something safer and better and cleaner for families all around the world, not just in North America, but in Asia and in developing markets. I think for her, she had spent her life really researching skin health and ingredients that she had also consulted some large companies around the world, but no one really did anything with what she had to say. 
you know, back in the day, everyone thought that, oh, like clean or natural skincare, you know, was a nice to have, not a necessity. Now I think things are changing, but it's a little bit too late for some of these larger companies where they're almost reacting rather than it being their core DNA as a brand. And so for her, like Dr. Joyce and a lot of our doctors, they just felt passionate about believing and joining this mission from day one that was genuine about providing better, safer products for families around the world. And that's why they joined us. And then, you know, the rest of our team, same thing, you know, I feel like with entrepreneurship, I I always tell people that it's a lot of either selling or begging and you sell them first. And then if they don't, if they don't buy it, then you beg and it's either one or the other. But yeah. And like during this entire process where you're, you're dealing with people who are much older than you, they're experts within their field, and you're trying to recruit them to this amazing, innovative vision that is moving at a faster pace in terms of innovation than the incumbent companies. Who were some of the mentors that you relied on to help guide you through this process? To be very honest, like I, I've just never been the sort of person that had like these strong I mean, I grew up with parents, though, that were entrepreneurs. And so for me, you know, I guess they had always been my mentors in a very, you know, not in like, I'm your mentor, you're my mentee sort of way, and but just in the most subtle ways. I've always looked up to them. And for a lot of people, they were entrepreneurs, like, you know, after they graduated from business school or after they started their business. But for me, like entrepreneurship was always in my blood. My parents started a business. My mom started a business with my dad when she was seven months pregnant with me. They built a company from nothing to become one of the largest in their industries. And, you know, I saw everything sort of business cycles, ups and downs and ups and downs. For me, like, you know, entrepreneurship was never going to be being on the cover of Forbes, like that was never going to be the meaning of entrepreneurship for me, because for me, entrepreneurship meant at the end of every month, my parents were going to have arguments because, you know, it meant were they going to be able to pay their employees at the end of every month? And so for my family, my family of entrepreneurs, my parents were entrepreneurs. That to me was the meaning of entrepreneurship. They were going to have difficult conversations because they were going to argue about whether or not they could make ends meet and pay their employees and pay people. And every single time they managed to do that and they managed to come out of that. And I just saw how difficult that was. And growing up, I guess they were my mentors, but I never thought like, you know, growing up, oh my God, I want to be an entrepreneur because I saw how tough life is as an entrepreneur. And I just didn't think I had it in me. Maybe I just thought maybe I should go to a nice school and go into finance and like try to have a nice, stable, cushy job. But at the end of the day, I worked in finance for many years. I had the nice, cushy job. I had everything that you could ask for and yet I felt like something was missing and I just didn't know what it was honestly I had no idea everyone else that was in all my who was in the same class as me in my private equity firm you know they seemed happy and I thought there was something wrong with me and then I left to join to start Ever Aiden and finally it was so clear you know why I was unhappy. It was because I was so supposed to be an entrepreneur. And I'm not sure if it was because of the mentorship or or having grown up in a family of such strong entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial personalities. But I don't think I could do 
anything else in the world except to be an entrepreneur today. And something my dad said when I was younger really stuck with me. He said, you know what, like, even if my business, um, your mom and my mom's business, if it goes to zero, I could never work with anyone else. We would just start another business. And today I feel the same way. I don't think I could do anything else but be an entrepreneur. And in some ways, you're kind of following in your your parents' footsteps because your husband, if I'm not incorrect, has helped you quite a bit and is part of your key leadership team. Yeah, yeah, I know. My husband is actually one of my co-founders. He is also my full-time co-founder. We have three co-founders at Ever Eden. And so it's the two of us and one of my very, very good friends as well. And yeah, it's strange. Like I didn't start out my life thinking like, oh, I'm just going to be like mom and dad and start a business with my husband. But that's exactly what happened. And it's really funny how life works. Yeah, that's great. And I think that they really taught you some sensibility that you don't always get with the glamour of entrepreneurship in Silicon Valley about the stakes for your employees and the kind of sensitive nature of being a leader of the uncertain future of your business and what that'll mean to your employees' lives if it goes to zero, if the balance sheet doesn't check out and you can't pay back your investors at a certain future endpoint. And I guess following that, what is one of the biggest or most challenging decisions that you've had to make as a CEO? I think that the most difficult decisions as a CEO or as a leader have always been around people. And for me, they have been when to fire people, you know, tough decisions around when to hire people as well. But I think when to fire people who are either toxic or bad for your organization or frankly, just no longer suitable for your stage in growth, even though they previously were great for your organization, have been very difficult ones to make because there are decisions around the heart. And, you know, sometimes it's clear cut. Sometimes it's, you know, this person was clearly underperforming or negative or toxic. And then it's a, a clear a clear decision. But what if that person stuck with you through thick and thin? What if that person was one of your first, you know, top five employees and they were responsible for so much of your early growth, but they just couldn't grow with the company as it scaled from like zero to five and five to 10 and 10 to 100. And I think those are the toughest decisions. I think as CEO, you're not meant to be the most popular person in the company. You're not you're not there to make likable, popular decisions. And it's actually my job to to make decisions that are right for the company, but unpopular. Ninety percent of the time, that is my job. And so I've had to fire people for many different reasons. Sometimes they've just not performed and sometimes they have the company or or they've outgrown the role. And I think whatever the reasons are, it's always difficult and, and it's never easy. You know, before I started Ever Aiden, I always thought that the most difficult thing about entrepreneurship would be Maybe, I I don't know, the hours or the logistical and operational part of it, but that's been untrue. I think the hardest thing, and I speak to a lot of entrepreneurs about this, but the hardest thing I've always been around people and managing people. Yeah, definitely. And it sounds like your parents uh, taught you quite a bit about that as well. So kind of wrapping up, what is some advice that you have for young entrepreneurs and what are your hopes for Ever Eden in the future? 
Yeah, I mean, my hopes for Ever Eden is really, you know, to be the next standard and the highest standard for safe, efficacious, beautiful skincare for for your family. I just think that families deserve the best of the best. And I think Ever Eden, we really have an earnestly in terms of the products that we're putting out there. In terms of my advice for young entrepreneurs, I would say that have a relentless pursuit of perfection, not perfection at all costs, but just create a company and a culture where people refuse to accept mediocrity. That's the first thing. And secondly, I think lead in a way that's authentic to you. As a young CEO, as a young entrepreneur, I was always reading all these books around like, oh, how to be a CEO. But at the end of the day, I think Pretending will either be extremely uncomfortable to you or just come across as inauthentic to everyone else. You have your own style. You're at where you are. You started a company because you have a different point of view and just own that. It doesn't matter how young or how old you are or, you know, whatever you are, just be authentic. And I would say the last thing is to be decent to people, treat people with fairness. And this does not mean that you should lower expectations or that mistakes don't matter in your company. It just means that you're creating a culture in your company where people feel safe to make the one-off mistake because we're all human. And then the final last thing I would tell young entrepreneurs is to hire people who care and people who are positive. Building a company is the most difficult thing that you could ever do. And so having negative people on your team or people who are just, you know, in it and phoning it in for a nine to five gig, it's just never going to work. Yeah. Yeah, you need the people with a passion. Well, thank you very much, Kim, for joining us on this episode of Imagine Human. We look forward to hearing about your success in the years to come and look forward to speaking with you again. Yeah, same here. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Imagine Human. We appreciate your support please check out our website at www.imaginehuman.com for show notes and a list of references on skincare that might benefit you. You can also check out past episodes, including our most recent one from global health expert Alana Sheikh, discussing strategies to prevent pandemics like COVID-19. Additionally, we are working on some interesting projects we hope to share with the community soon. As always, stay safe. If you like this episode, please consider sharing it with your friends and family. And don't forget to subscribe on iTunes. Thank you very much.